a satellite image or like even like a land use map doesn't create impact, right? You need you need an application that changes behavior. Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest on the show today is Rob Emanuel. He is a geospatial architect working at Microsoft and he's building something called the Planetary Computer and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Just a quick heads up before we dive into the episode. Rob mentions this idea of blob storage quite a bit during the episode and I thought it'd be handy if we were all on the same page. So blob is short for binary large object and some of the typical examples when people talk about blob data, they, they talk about images, they talk about audio files, they talk about multimedia. So during the conversation when Rob talks about blob storage, he's talking about storage of these binary large objects. So blob storage is simply an optimized way for storing massive amounts of, of these kinds of unstructured data. Hi Rob, welcome to the podcast. I believe you're the first geospatial architect that, I, that I've talked to on the podcast. So I would really like to hear about that, how you got involved in geospatial, how you ended up as a geospatial architect. And of course, I'd really like to move on and talk about the, the planetary computer that you're building at Microsoft. But let's start with the, with the geospatial architecture first. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I am a geospatial architect at Microsoft. What that means is that I'm architecting systems on Azure and the cloud, dealing with geospatial data and analytics. So my expertise is in geospatial software development. I've been a software developer for, oh, I can't even remember how long. But I got into geospatial first through a company called Xavier, which is uh, the company that I was working to previous to Microsoft, where we did large-scale raster data processing through a project called GeoTrellis and uh, some deep learning for satellite and aerial imagery through a project called Raster Vision. I was the VP of Research and Development there until about a year ago when I started on the team that's working on the planetary computer at Microsoft. Just out of curiosity, is it a big jump to go from being a, a developer to being a, an architect? No, it's, I, I do a lot of software engineering, but also sort of designing systems. It's, it's, it's pretty much the same thing. It's just a, a fun title, really, for, for an engineer who's building geospatial. I'm, I'm happy to have the, uh, the title that I have, but it's, it's really similar to other people doing software engineering for geospatial. Well, thank you very much for adding a bit of context to the to the conversation in terms of your background. But the main topic of the conversation today is the the planetary computer. What is a planetary computer? So the planetary computer is a modular set of components that is really aimed at enabling geospatial solutions and analytics in Azure, but sort of in general. You know, we're really looking to use Microsoft's technologies and capabilities to accelerate the building out of applications and solutions that have an environmental impact. And so a lot of areas of uh, environmental sustainability need geospatial data, and geospatial data is incredibly large. You know, if, if you're, we're talking about not just imagery, but for instance, like climate model projection data, you sort of need the power of a cloud to do that type of processing, unless you have a supercomputer, which most, most people don't. So we're building out components uh, so that we can host that data, make it available to anyone, also be able to search that data and, and make it more useful. If you have a pile of you know, files in, in blob storage, that's great. But if you're only interested in a specific time and a specific location, 
you need effective ways to to find the data that you want. And so a large component of the planetary computer is the APIs for doing spatiotemporal searching of that data. And then once you have the data that you need, you need to do analysis to it uh, often. So we provide a Jupyter Hub environment that runs next to the data in the cloud so that people can use their favorite open source and our favorite open source tools to do the sort of earth earth data science work for analyzing that data. And we do it, the planetary computer is really designed in a modular way so that people building production solutions can take whatever components make sense for their architecture and build it into their applications because we want to really aim these capabilities at people who are making you know, solutions that are used and used for impact. I want to try and summarize this a little bit here. It sounds like you're hosting data, a huge amount of data, environmental data, it sounded like. So this is part of these modules of these components that you talked about. So we've got the hosting component, we've got the search component, and we've also got a compute component. Am I on the right track? Yes. Wonderful. I would really like to start with the hosting of the data first. Could you give us a little bit more information about that? What kind of da- data sets are you hosting? So there's a lot of publicly licensed satellite imagery. Similar to other cloud platforms, we have the Sentinel data sets, Landsat. We're really excited to get Landsat 9 into the planetary computer once the images start becoming available. But also things like elevation data, the point cloud data that can be used to derive various elevation products. We have uh, climate model projection data. We have biodiversity data, you know, derived products from remote sensing, things like Sentinel-1, 3, and 5. Just a large range of publicly, openly licensed data sets that can be used in geospatial uh, analytics. So some of those are incredibly big data sets. If I'm understanding this correctly, you're taking a copy of those existing data sets and moving them into your environment. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. And you named quite a few different sort of data sets that are derived from from satellite platforms. Are we just talking about raster data here? We're focused primarily on raster data for the APIs that we're developing, or at least that's the majority of the the use cases is cloud-optimized geotiffs stored in a stack API. However, there's different formats that we're hosting. So we're currently hosting NetCDS, we're czar data sets, also some vector data sets, some parquet tabular data that contains geospatial features, but in a parquet table. So there's a real wide range of you know, the data sets that we are targeting to host. And I, I also mentioned you know, point cloud data. I think raster data with the cloud-optimized geotiff format is the sort of most accessible to this type of system currently. And I think a lot of like other data formats are learning a lot about how people are using raster data. Also, that's my background. I think the other sort of like large component is the sort of czar net CDF climatology data sets doing a lot of work on the cloud. And so as these formats sort of advance and become more cloud optimized, we're exposing more and more different types of data. I just want to clarify, when we talk about cloud-optimized, are we talking about streamable data? Yeah, streamable data where you can host the files in blob storage, and there's a way to get only the bytes that you want. If you're dealing with large sets of data, you know, often they're like large files or many small files, 
there needs to be a way to only read the bytes that you want, or else you have to download the entire you know, set of data into your local machine, which oftentimes is not even feasible, depending on the size of your machine. So when it's cloud optimized, it means that it's optimized for reading windows or pieces of that data set that is hosted on the cloud, and you're not, you're not really reading anything you don't need to. When we talk about reading, so I, I think for cloud-optimized geotiffs, for example, we're talking about reading a spatial extent, like I'm only interested in this piece of data. What about reading and streaming temporal data? So that's where, you know, czar or like there's a lot of work going on with cloud-optimized NetCDF, which really uses czar metadata to index into NetCDF files. But that's, it's a similar thing, right? The, there's a spatial dimension. There's two spatial dimensions in a raster in the sort of gridded and dimensional format that is, you know, what NetCDF or ZAR encapsulates. You're just adding the spatial dimension to. So you're saying this area, this time, find me the set of bytes. And they can be like centrally located or located in a number of, of files. Just find me those bytes and then read those. So it's, it's really an index into an n-dimensional array of data. But when you're moving the, these large data sets over from wherever it is they're being stored, hosted today, and bringing them into your environment, I'm assuming you have to convert them into these cloud-optimized formats. How do you decide which format to use? Like, What does the decision look like when you're looking at a data set? Okay, should I store this as a cloud-optimized GeoTIFF or as a SAR? What does your decision process look like? And do you even have to make that decision or do you just store them as, as both? Yeah, that decision process has been interesting in some cases. Some, sometimes it's really easy. I mean, Landsat comes in cloud-optimized geotiffs already and things that are like really a snapshot of time that is not temporally dense, right? Like a, like a satellite imagery, an individual capture that has a really well-defined footprint on the earth is just good for raster data. So cloud-optimized geotiffs is an easy answer there. However, there's some formats that are stored as non-raster formats, right? And like HDF and NetCDF like can store raster data inside them, oftentimes do. For instance, the GOES 16 and 17 satellites, the data that NOAA offers is through NetCDF files. And actually the projection information encoded in those NetCDF files is pretty tricky because it's so the satellite is so far back it's taking such a a wide picture of the earth that the actual like footprint of the earth quote unquote can go outside of the you know the circle of of the uh, of the view of the earth so it, encoding that so when we were processing that data we're storing the original net cdf because we want to make sure not to make too many editorial or like yeah we don't want to make too many modifications on the scientific data that people have you know been experts in and 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 are offering right we want to offer as close to the original data set as possible but then we exported cloud optimized geotiffs for each of the bands in the the CMI the cloud and moisture imagery product of goes and it turns out that those rasters some of the open source tooling dealing with rasters can't handle the projection information as well as you'd like. And actually that affected our ability to visualize that data. So we also offer a Web Mercator reprojected version of the first three bands, which are used for visualization, just so that you can explore it using our tool to put the images on the map and be able to find the images, you know, actually see the images that you want to use. But when we're making decisions about 
data sets that are not so clearly obvious to use raster data for, there's a discussion in the community about you know what is Zar good for versus cloud optimized geotiff versus some some other some other formats. So our take on that so far, you know, basically we have conversations with community members, with the data providers to try to figure this out. And so what we've kind of come across so far is that if you have temporally dense data that you want to actually chunk, you you want the individual components of the file to be accessed in chunks of time, then that's where something like a cloud optimized NetCDF or a czar format would be better. But we do have to make that choice. And we're continually thinking, okay, should we host this in Cloud Optimized Geotis? Should we host this in another format like Czar? Is this more of a point cloud data set? Should we host multiple chunkings of each of the data sets? So yeah, it's, it's, it'll be interesting to see how the Cloud Optimized formats of these data transform. And based on user input, if we end up actually hosting multiple copies or transforming the data to make it more easily accessible. So I think you've done an absolutely brilliant job of describing the hosting decisions you're making for each each data set. Could you talk to us about how you make these data sets searchable, how you expose them to the world? Sure. We lean really heavily on the amazing work that's going on in the Stack ecosystem, the Spatiotemporal Asset Catalog ecosystem, which is an effort that arose from a number of people who were building out APIs to do this type of work, you know, to make geospatial data available on the web and searchable. And organizations were kind of inventing their own sort of metadata standards or, or just, you know, figuring out for themselves, okay, how do we encode these similar properties of Earth observation data and other spatiotemporal type data, where a bunch of us met in Denver for the initial stack sprint before it was even called stack. And, you know, put our heads together to think about what is a implementation driven standard look like that is flexible enough that it's not going to take a long period of trying to nail down this, a specification that covers every single use case, but instead is something that we can iterate on through GitHub and, you know, not be super strict, be extendable and be implementation driven. And so Stack came out of that, and I believe it's it's you know picked up a lot of steam, and people realize that it's a way to just encode metadata for spatiotemporal data, whether it be rasters or point cloud or anything, and have a common language, a common JSON schema to be able to specify you know what does this data contain, how much information can I contain about this data, and what that allows you know, an API to do is then build a database that indexes the the metadata for its uh, spatial component, its temporal component, and allow searches over that data and then have a very well-specified return value. So applications, whether they're building against the Planetary Computer Stack API or they're building against the Element 84 Earth Search API, they're getting the same sort of information in a standard way. Could we draw any comparison at all between Stack and perhaps the Git capabilities request of a web feature service? Yes, actually. So web WFS is being superseded by a standard called OGC API features. And this is part of OGC's new suite of standards under the sort of OGC API umbrella. 
And so Stack itself is comprised of two different components. There's Stack Core, which is the data models, and then Stack API, which itself is an extension of OGC API features. So they're really not one and the same, but Stack API is a version of OGC API features. It reuses all of the sort of language about collections and items and all of the API specification of how you do searches, the way you specify the query language and the CQL2 language now. So, and the Stack community has been working closely with the OGC API features community to sort of get get the standard working in both cases. But yeah, I, I would consider the Stack API as a specific application of OGC API features. We've talked about the hosting of data, and now we've talked about how, how you're exposing this data to the world, how you're making it searchable, how you're helping people find the data that you're hosting. Can you talk a little bit about the, the Jupyter Hub that you're hosting? Yep. So, you know, in order for the data to be most easily accessible, give the fastest access, and also, you know, with cloud providers, often if you're moving data across data centers, there's an egress fee that somebody has to pay. So you, you really want to move your compute next to the data so that it lives in the same data center as the data. And so, you know, there's plenty of ways to do that. The Pangeo ecosystem has like a rich set of documented ways to deploy Jupyter hubs with open source tools so that you can do earth science data, earth science analysis, data science in cloud environments or on supercomputers, HPC systems. but you have to know how to like deploy that and it's the pain to manage a deployment of you know a kubernetes cluster that lives next to the data so we provide a service that we're doing the management of the deployment of that system and the maintenance of the images that contain all of the most up to date open source libraries and allow users to request access to that jupyter hub in which they get an account and they can sign in and use you know, a pod in our Azure Kubernetes cluster that lives in the same data center right next to the data. So you're talking about, uh, I need to apply for an account there. Are there certain pieces of this that, that are pay to play and certain pieces of this that are free to use? Everything is free to use. The data and APIs are anonymously accessible, right? You don't have to have an account to access them. You can just go to the, the public endpoint. There is a token mechanism that you have to use in order to access the data, which is just a way for us to control egress, but it's also anonymously accessible. You just hit an endpoint, you get a token, you can use that token for a set um, expiration date, and then you just can get another token. And it's a bit rate limited, but it should be you know, enough for, for, for doing large-scale jobs. So just so I understand this, Let's say I, I search the, the stack, I use the, the endpoints that you're exposing to the world, I search through the data you're hosting, I find something I'm interested in, what do I get back? Do I, do I get back a URL that I can pull that into my own system and then start streaming data from your hosted blob store over to whatever it is I'm doing for free? Yes, yeah. So you get it uh, with the stack assets, you get an href, which is a URL. And then so that URL won't work on its own. You just have to hand that URL to a second API and say, hey, sign this. Or you can request a token and sign it yourself. But it's just appending a query parameter to the URL. 
And so if you found the data you wanted, you have the stack items, you have all the metadata to say, okay, this is the data that I want to work with. And now there's a variety of open source tools to integrate, to turn stack items into, you know, data, either, either X-arrays or VRTs now with the new release of GDAL. But you would have to sign those URLs prior to accessing the data. So it's just one little step in between. So by signing a URL, are you talking about getting a token? Yeah, getting a token. Yep. So, so this sounds absolutely amazing. So, so this means that I could be sitting at home here and I could search your catalog, find some data I'm interested in, pull it into QJS, for example, and start working on it for free. Incredible. Why is Microsoft doing this? Why is Microsoft providing the, the service? What, what's the sort of motivation for Microsoft to do this? So Microsoft has taken a stance that in order for Microsoft as a business to do well in the long term, the world needs to do well. And the, there's something in the way of the world doing well if you take you know a decades outlook that is climate change. So Microsoft has you know dedicated investment, large investments to teams of people working on ways to utilize the vast resources we have, the cloud that we have, the technology that we have, and say, how can we make an impact on this? Because it is actually in our long-term business interest to move the needle on climate change. And so as part of that, in 2020, there was some announcements made around uh, commitments that Microsoft was making around carbon, water, waste, and ecosystems. Carbon by 2030 will be carbon negative, and by 2050, we'll have removed all of the carbon that we've ever emitted as a company since the founding. The uh, commitment to be zero waste by 2030, to be water positive, to replenish more water than we use by 2030, and for ecosystems to, by 2025, protect more land than we use, and to also build a planetary computer that enables environmental uh, sustainability solutions through the use of data in the cloud. Wow. I mean, this sounds absolutely amazing. It it really does. There's another company, a little company out there doing something similar, and it's called Google. (laughs) They've got something (laughs) called the the Google Earth Engine. You might have heard of this. I have. Yeah. And right at the start, you you said that you were a geospatial architect. I'm wondering, when, when when you thought about building these things, when you were hired to build this by Microsoft, did you look at what Google was doing and said, ah, okay, that has been done. So we, we need to do something different. Or is this just the, the best architecture to, to solve this problem, to help to give people access to the data? Well, first off, Google Earth Engine is doing amazing things and has been around for a long time and uh, is a great platform. And so certainly when I was hired, I looked at Google Earth Engine among other platforms that are doing this type of, you know, enabling geospatial analytics. And, you know, one thing is that there's plenty of people who use Google's cloud platform and want to integrate with the data sets that Google Earth Engine has to offer. Microsoft has a vast number of, of users and, and companies using Azure. And so to enable their geospatial workflows, we also have to host the data. AWS is doing it too. It's, it's becoming sort of baseline to be able to offer those data sets in a way that doesn't mean you're pulling things off of FTP servers or across clouds. The different approach that we ended up taking is more around building out that modular set of components that really focuses in on the open source ecosystem. I've been contributing to and a, and a big proponent of the open source geospatial ecosystem for, for many, many years. And I 
I believe it's such a valuable asset, not just to, in the fight for climate change, but just in general, like what what's available in the open source ecosystem for dealing with geospatial data is, is so valuable to so many people and so many companies that you know anything that we're building should try to take advantage of that as much as possible and contribute back to that as much as possible. So we want to be in a situation where if people want to use the best in class open source that was just released you know, six months ago, and, and they want to build a PyTorch model against this data, and they want to pull in all of their, you know, neat Pangeo ecosystem tools. We want to enable that and not just enable it. We want to be on the front lines of, okay, what do these tools need? What do these projects need? How do we support them? And how do we contribute to them? So really it's a, it's a method of, it's just an architecture of bringing in that open source ecosystem. So that's that a little bit draws a distinction between us and some other platforms, including Google Earth Engine, which is so super powerful, super feature rich and, and amazing. People are doing amazing science on it. And you know, we're friendly with the team. They contribute to the stack ecosystem, their stack collections for each of their collections as well. Right. We're we're looking on like, you know, we're playing in the open source ecosystem as, you know, collaborators, even if our companies are are competitive. But yeah, that's sort of the difference of approach that that I'd say we were taking. Yeah, I really appreciate you w- walking us through that. And just out of curiosity, you mentioned you you looked at uh, so Google Earth Engine among other platforms. What other platforms did you look at in terms of, of getting inspiration for for building the planetary computer? So there's there's a number of platforms. I mean, Descartes Labs is a great platform that really you know enables this type of analytics and very fast access to the data that's hosted on the cloud. Synergize also has a really great, you know, setup with with Sentinel Hub, Esri with, you know, their image server and uh, notebooks, notebook-based workflows is, you know, sort of similar solutions that we definitely took a look at and and want to integrate with as much as possible, which is, you know, part of the reason we're choosing to move forward with Stack because even though we're sort of using our own deployments of open source tooling, to expose the data and the functionality. If we're all just using the same standard, you know, we're, we're moving towards using the same standard, then these things become interoperable. And if somebody's on a, you know, Descartes Labs notebook and they want to pull in some planetary computer data, great. You know, that's that we want to be able to enable those types of situations. So obviously there's a lot more platforms out there than I was aware of. When you think about some of the key technologies which are making these platforms, these kinds of things possible, are we just still thinking about cloud computing or are we thinking about streamable data or formats like the cloud-optimized GeoTIFF? Are, are we talking about uh, the stack or is there there's something else? If you had to sort of point your finger at some of the key technologies which are making these platforms possible, what, what would those be? Yeah, I would say the, you know, blob storage is really not only what's like making it possible, but sort of filling the need. If you're working with this type of data, at this scale, either you have a an amazing machine that you own, or you're working in the cloud, right? And so there's the cloud itself with its very, you know, it's a planetary computer, right? And a computer has storage, and it has compute, and it has some GPUs, amongst many other small parts. But if you think about it in that framing, you know, the ability to have cheap object storage that can hold petabytes and petabytes of information that anybody can access from VMs, whether they be running in a, a Kubernetes cluster or like 
you know, Azure Batch, which we use for our large scale processing, there's compute available to to take advantage of that data, right? That's the that's and then GPUs to do your you know machine learning training and, and and inference. Those are the sort of core components of a cloud platform. The very primitive you know basics that you need to do this type of uh, analytics data processing. And so because of the the need to scale you know two petabytes of data, that's where you know these these cloud platforms are are sort of you know a necessity. And and there was a recent paper around um, users of big earth data that did a survey of users and most users are, are still downloading data, which makes sense, right? You talked about pulling some data files, loading it up in QGIS. That's, you know, I, I still do that when I want to like, you know, look at uh, certain images, right? But if we're going to enable that type of, the type of geospatial analysis that we need to do at a global scale, it's going to have to move into the cloud. So yeah, these platforms are really trying to take advantage of the compute and the storage available and put it into the hands of users who are traditionally bound to desktop systems that have limited capabilities. So obviously this is an incredibly complex and difficult puzzle to solve. You know, it, it cannot be easy deciding which data sources to host, how to host them, how to provide access to them. Uh, and then obviously all the all the considerations around the compute, what tools do we make available, all of that kind of thing, and doing this at a, a massive scale. This can't be an easy problem to solve. But what's the hardest bit about building this, do you think? Like if I could snap my fingers and solve one problem for you right here, right now, what would that problem be? It's a good question. It's a good question. I think it's, you know, right now we're pretty hyper-focused on capabilities, which start with the data. So enabling data sets that are openly licensed to get into storage and not just data sets that are in our purview, but allowing anybody to be able to push data into this system and index it in a way that really, really richly describes the data so that you never have to look at any data that you, that you don't want to, right? So getting the stack standard like and all of its extensions completely filled out so that it describes perfectly, you know, in an idealized world, describes perfectly the data that it represents, having that implemented across not just you know, the Azure planetary computer, the Microsoft planetary computer, but every system that is hosting geospatial data so that everything is interoperable, and then enabling, enriching that metadata through the machine learning that we all know is going to be necessary in order to sort through all of this vast amount of data. And then I think the last thing, if I, you know, if you could snap your fingers, is is really solving the sort of data fusion problem of, you know, how do we make it so that we don't care if it's a, a Landsat or Sentinel scene. Actually, all everything is sort of normalized into this like description of some area of space and time that we can kind of use together as one set of descriptions, no matter what sensor it came from, in order to fuel analysis and then making it super easy for users to build applications where even if they're not geospatial developers, they don't know what a CRS is. How do we sort of abstract all of that away so that you're only getting the information that you're interested in about a location and that fuels your solution or your science? Right at the start of this conversation, you, you mentioned about this uh, interaction you have with the community. You're saying you're asking the community, what do they want? What, what do they need? How can we make this better? What, what's working for you? And I think you're referring to, at that time anyway, 
file formats? You know, how can we deliver this data to you in, in the best possible format? This is my next question. How do you know that people are, are going to use this? Are people telling you, hey, we want this? Or are you looking out in the market and saying, other people are doing it, we're going to do it too, there must be a need. And I guess what, what I'm sort of in a very roundabout way trying to ask, is this a build it and they will come? Or is the market telling you, hey, we, we need this thing here? We want this and we want it to look like this. I think there's a little bit of both, to be honest with you. There's a little bit of build it and they will come where, you know, we're having the experience of, of what large-scale geospatial analytics takes. And there's some baseline capability that is, you know, sort of like, yes, let's snap our fingers and, and make that happen. However, you know, one of the advantages of being at Microsoft is that we have a vast customer network of people who have real problems who are saying, hey, I need to look at geospatial data in this way. And solving those problems is, you know, part of our purview because I think that the planetary computer is aimed at environmental sustainability as its primary use case, but the type of horizontal functionality that's providing is applicable in many different use cases. And, you know, somebody who's trying to you know, gain insights about um, a market based off of the changes in, in imagery has very similar capability needs as, you know, people who are trying to monitor land use change in order to understand how carbon is changing over, over those, those areas. So there's a range of information that we're taking in about what are the needs for geospatial analytics and but we're also kind of looking ahead of the puck and saying, okay, we sort of know, we know what's not possible right now that we need to make possible. So we're building, we're, we're building that. Okay, so staying with the theme of, of looking where the puck is going, what, what is this going to look like in five years time, do you think? I think it will look like the application of pre-existing machine learning models that are fine-tuned for your area of interest over a wide range of data, whether that's contributed by governments like NASA or data sets derived by users uh, and scientific institutions, is going to be sort of very easy. It's going to be sort of, you know, how do I, how do I actually apply these models for the solution that I'm aimed at rather than let me go find those files? And really, like you say five years time, and I'm laughing a little bit because if you asked me this five years ago, I'd probably say the same thing. So <laughs> like geospatial data and especially like the scientific sensors that are flying in space and collecting data are so complex. I mean, you know, synthetic aperture radar data is so complex. So yeah, the, all these different data types are, are, you know, it's taking a really long time to even get the basics down. So I hope in five years that that vision is complete and you know data is super accessible through a well-known format to completely described by metadata and models are easily applied to that data to solve specific problems and fingers crossed we can we can finally get there in five years let's hope so hey just the final question here earlier on you talked about this idea of taking all that complexity and you know abstracting it away for the users so they could just get on with the business of doing the job of you know solving whatever problem they have I wonder sometimes if we're not doing ourselves a bit of a, a disservice by doing that because we have almost unrealistic expectations, perhaps. You're talking about how difficult SAR data is to work with. You're talking about, if you'd asked me this question five years ago, I would have said the same thing because it's a huge and difficult problem to solve, I guess. I wonder if we'd have more sort of realistic expectations, perhaps build something else if we 
as a community understood how difficult it is to to do this. Yeah, that, that's a fair point. And I think when I was saying abstracted away, I meant from a certain class of users, right? Or or people building the you know things that are actually making an impact because a satellite image or like even like a land use map doesn't create impact, right? You need you need an application that changes behavior that actually people who are making different decisions based off of. And so the decision makers that are using a solution, you don't want them you want to hide the complexity of, you know, all the in, incredible complexity of geospatial data and 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 you know, earth science. However, I think, you know, a lot of your listeners and a lot of people that I are in my community are the type of people that need to take on that complexity and say, hey, we're the people that need to set those downstream users up for success by making it really straightforward, taking the complexity away and kind of shouldering that complexity through the tools that we build and through the the information that we derive and how we present that information to users. So I think that there's a lot of work to do there. And and currently, you know, you sort of have to understand uh, what land use change and and how de- how those things are derived and land use classes and even resolution of a map you still need to kind of understand that to sort of take advantage of that information and so it's like how do we as you know the geospatial open source community figure out how to really do what we're best set up to do and and take on that complexity rob i really want to thank you for your time i really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me to explain what it is that you're building, how you're building it, why you're building it, what it might look like in the future. Really enjoyed the conversation. Before I let you go, is there anywhere that listeners can go if they want to try things out? Can they apply to be part of some sort of beta testing, whatever? Can they get access to this? Can they reach out to you if they have any questions? Is there anywhere where we can send people that that want to know more? Sure. You can go to planetarycomputer.microsoft.com. There's a request access that you can request access to the hub. There's also documentation about our stack APIs and the data sets that we have available. We have tools to be able to like explore the data on a map. We're also on GitHub, the Planetary Computer APIs, uh, which you know actually build the software that we end up deploying for our APIs, is open source. The hub is open source. There's documentation about how you can deploy your own hub. There's also a GitHub repository where we're using GitHub discussions to have discussions about, you know, what are people interested in? What are people's experiences? So please reach out to any of the team. Planetarycomputer at microsoft.com is also an email that you can reach out to us. We'd love to talk to you. Thanks again for your time, Rob. Thanks for your patience. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Really appreciate being on. So I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Rob. I hope you enjoyed learning all about the planetary computer that Microsoft is building. And I hope you take advantage of this because it sounds really, really cool. So if you want to find out more about it, the URL that Rob mentioned towards the end there was planetarycomputer.microsoft.com. And I'm on that webpage at the moment and a whole bunch of data catalogs, there's applications, there's documentation. It's pretty amazing. So check it out if you're interested. If you've enjoyed this episode and haven't yet listened to the episode all about Google Earth Engine, I think you might enjoy that as well. Rob talked a little bit about Google Earth Engine during the episode, but to get a few more details about it, I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes of this podcast. And that's it for me. That's it for another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. Please feel free to reach out to me. You can find me on Twitter at Mapscaping, or there'll be a link to my LinkedIn profile in the show notes of this episode. Or you can simply email me, 
info at mapscaping.com. I would love to hear from you. Okay, we'll talk again next week. Bye.